Well, thank you, Amy, and thanks everybody for being here tonight and joining us as we continue this series on Ecclesiastes. Um, you know, the, as we've been going through Ecclesiastes here, the, the author has clearly demonstrated or shown to us again and again that really the things in our life that are capable of providing us the most joy and happiness are also the sources of our greatest pains and disappointments. This is really the truth that runs throughout Ecclesiastes. These are complex and contradictory realities and experiences of life. There's so many things that feel so good and that bring us such joy and bring us such happiness. And those very same things, though, or the loss of those things or the inability to have those things, or even when we have them themselves, they fail us. We are filled with hurts and with pains. And today's text is really reflective of the human experience. You know, Ecclesiastes has, has highlighted really three main gifts that God has given us in this life. Things for our joy and for our happiness. Marriage and family, you know, the family as a gift from the Lord, work and food and drink. We've already talked about work. We talked about that one a couple of weeks back on the gift of work and how it is built for our joy, but there's also peril in there. We're going to talk about food and drink um, coming up in a couple of weeks as well. But tonight's passage is really centered then upon this gift and oftentimes prison that family can feel like. Like this is one of those areas, and this is a desire that is universal, the desire to find someone to love and to be loved by, to be with someone is an incredibly strong desire, and it's a good one. And it's also probably this greatest source of both joy and pain and disappointment, which we know, our culture knows, you don't have to scan much of music or movies or film or literature to see this, right? but this is where we find probably our greatest satisfaction in life and also our greatest sorrows. And so the author of Ecclesiastes wants to give us this picture then, or give us this wisdom that in light of everything, in light of the vanity of life, right? Everything is vanity, and meaning vapor, can't be grasped. Look, everything is going to flee, flee away. You know, whatever you work at, eventually you'll lose it anyway, right? This kind of pointlessness to life. Okay, if this is it, then there is nothing better than to pursue this gift that God has given. The fact that God gives us a family, a spouse and a partner, is an incredible gift and an incredible joy. It's a joy and a gift to be enjoyed. Someone to enjoy and someone to enjoy life with. There's nothing better, the author says. This is not the only place he says this, right? He's going to say this multiple times throughout Ecclesiastes. There's nothing better than this. There really is nothing better than to have someone to enjoy and someone to enjoy working with in the toils of life. Vocational work, family work, Kingdom building work, I mean, there's just, there's nothing better than to have someone, a partner, a spouse, to have someone to do this with. It's not good for us to be alone, right? This was really reflective, and this instruction from Ecclesiastes or this wisdom is really reflective of Genesis and God's design in the very beginning, right? We were created for this. In order not just to accomplish the work that God has given, but to be able to find enjoyment in the work, in the toil, there's nothing better than having a partner. Right at the very beginning of Genesis, God created man and he gave him work to do. 
And then if you know that narrative, it showed man trying to work alone and it wasn't good. And God said, right, let us make a helper for the man because it's not good to be alone. There's this aspect, we were not created to live life alone and to be alone. We were created to have this partner, a desire for others to be part of a family, to work in this way. We were made for this. And this desire really does reflect our experiences and it reflects these gifts. You know, you see the same gifts that God has given to us and are reflected in the Bible, family, food and drink, work. I mean, these are the things that all of the world is actively pursuing as well and looks at as the greatest goods because they were, we were made for them. Everybody is pursuing love. Everyone is pursuing a family. It's a very universal experience. Now, it may look different in different cultures and places is what that looks like to have a spouse or look like to have a partner or a family, but the desire for someone or to be part of a family, to be working with others like this, I mean, it's, it's a universal description and an incredible gift and joy to be able to have a family. But while Ecclesiastes describes how love and family is one of the greatest gifts given to God, the author of Ecclesiastes always, also, as a true philosopher and wise in wisdom, right, shows us that it's also the place where we experience some of the greatest disappointments. Many of us have also experienced the other side of pursuing love in a family and have found deep pain and disappointment. We have found marriage or to be in a relationship with someone to be a trap, a difficult one and a painful one. The pursuit of God's designs and gifts can easily be replaced by schemes and traps, the author of Ecclesiastes wants to say. Foolishness, right? This foolishness can lead to incredible hurt, to a bitterness that's worse than death, the author says. So Ecclesiastes really does speak to all of our experiences, to the full experiences of love and of family. The gift of a partner to work with and enjoy life with, there is nothing better than. And it also speaks to the pain and the disappointment that we've experienced as well in our relationships. Disappointment with the partners that we've had, the hurts and the pains, the hurt and the longing for partners that never materialized, the waiting and looking. Ecclesiastes really speaks to the human condition when it comes to love and family. So Ecclesiastes then, with this very honest perspective of life, wants to give wisdom, right? It imparts wisdom to us, a calling to the people of God. We are being called then as a people of God to appreciate and cultivate the gift of family. It is a gift. God has gifted you. If you are, if you're in that place, if God has gifted you with a spouse and a family, and that's many of us, then we are called to live in wisdom with that, to be thankful for that. To live in wisdom if you have a spouse, if you have a family, right? And those two things aren't always go together. You may have, a, you may have children without a spouse, you may have a spouse without children, but if you have this, Ecclesiastes is calling us to be wise about it, to be, and that looks like appreciation and enjoyment. Enjoy your family. There is nothing better than to enjoy what this gift that God has given you. Not viewing our spouse and our children as obstacles in our plan and in our work. Not viewing them as instruments to use to make us 
more effective or work harder, but rather to just enjoy the gifts that God has given, to enjoy our wives and our husbands, our children, cultivating a life of enjoyment rather than a life of escaping our families for enjoyment. But it's the family is the primary place, the gift where we enjoy the life that God has given us. Intentionally spending and enjoying time together just for the joy of being together. And if God hasn't gifted you with a spouse or family, Ecclesiastes is speaking to us as well. Those of us who do not, are not married, do not have children, we are also called to be wise. And this looks like contentment and discernment. Not, on the one hand, not being too quick, right? The warning here is very clear through Ecclesiastes to single people of not being too quick to give your heart to someone, avoiding the traps that are laid for us when it comes to relationships. And on the other hand, also not becoming disillusioned and embittered and giving up on the gifts that God has given being closed off and avoiding God's gifts completely and saying, this isn't for me. Now, this is hard. And I think it's, it's, it's harder for those who haven't been gifted a family or a spouse, obviously. And this instruction that Solomon gives, he knows that, which is why he says, look, one in a thousand. <laughs> I haven't seen this. You know, the, the, it's going to be hard. Avoiding this is almost impossible. Almost all of us, and if we're honest, even those of us who do have marriages, families, we all have fallen into these snares and traps. We have all made relationship mistakes. We have gotten our hearts entangled with people that we never should have. We compromised ourselves or our consciences in ways that we never should have. Like, like someone says, I looked around. I saw one in a thousand guys who did it right. I, it's, and that's even probably a, a good percentage. Like, we will mess up when it comes to relationships. It's hard. But we shouldn't continue just to do the same things over and over again then and hope that things will change, nor should we lose hope that God has gifts for us. So we're called to be a people then who rightly celebrate and enjoy God's gifts. We're called to be a people, just like with work, with food and drink, with everything, we're called to be a people then that really model joy and contentment with whatever stage or set of life that we're in. Wisdom and contentment and joy in marriage and in singleness. Right? So we as a people are to look like a people who are joyful, who enjoy our lives, who enjoy marriage, and who enjoy singleness. A seriousness to our enjoyment and a seriousness in our discernment. We're not fools when it comes to marriage, and we're not fools when it comes to singleness. Our problem is, right, wisdom is very easy to agree to, and the calling of Ecclesiastes is very easy to understand and say, yes, I would love this. This sounds great. We should all enjoy the life that we have, and I want to enjoy my family, and I want to enjoy my spouse. What makes this so hard, though, Right, is that we have as tendencies to just kind of vacillate between either making too big a deal of family and relationships, going all in, or disregarding it and casting it off and, and not giving it the attention that it needs. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes this is just laziness, right? I mean, some of us just get lazy and we need to be reminded of the truth. 
God has given you a gift. Enjoy the gift. Appreciate the gifts that God has given us. And that's enough for some of us to just be reminded of that fact. Be like, oh, whew, wait, I got to wake up. I've just been in a daze. I've just been working, and I haven't been appreciating and loving my spouse. Okay, I'm going to do this. For most of us, though, it goes beyond just laziness because as a culture, and we're a product of our culture, we have a really hard time when it comes to love and relationships. Our whole culture has a, whole, has a hard time when it comes to love and relationships, so it's not a surprise then that the church is also going to have a hard time with love and relationships and family. And the problem that we have is this problem of idolatry. The Bible gives this, talks about idolatry from Genesis through Revelation. And the issue is, we as a people, right, we take the good things that God gives us, his gifts. So you got these three main gifts in Ecclesiastes, love and marriage, work, food and drink. We take God's gifts and we turn them into ultimate things that we have to have to be happy. The author of Ecclesiastes writes, right, God made men upright. And he's, he's referencing Genesis here at the end. Look, we were all made right. We had everything we needed at the beginning. God had given us all things, that we, all these gifts were present, but we were not content. But we schemed. We scheme, we continue to scheme and make plans. We strive and we seek after the gifts that God promises us. So we're not content with the gifts he's given. We want more and more and more. We're never satisfied. We taste and we see the goodness of God's gifts, and we just give our hearts to those things. And we pursue them as the only things that will ever make us happy. Because they do make us happy. And that's the, what's so tricky about these idols. We don't go after things that aren't good and don't feel good. We go after things that feel good that are good. That's why they are so easily enslaving us, because it's, we can easily give my heart to someone. I can easily go down this path, because to be in love with someone feels amazing. To have someone who loves you back feels amazing. Like It, it makes sense that the world would really go after this and want this, just like work. Meaningful, successful work feels amazing. Like these, this is, we throw ourselves into these things and we want them so bad and that they become means of salvation. They become the only ways in which we find ourselves to get happy or to be happy. We tell ourselves in our hearts things like, if only I had you know, this, then my life would finally be happy. I'd finally be satisfied. I'd finally be complete. If only my spouse was like this, oh, my family, if only my kids were like this, if only I was like this, oh, this, whatever that if only, right, that's that idol that we worship and we serve and we seek after. We, so we take these gifts that God has given us and we scheme for how we're going to get them. We taste it and we want more of it. And so we start scheming and looking for it and wanting it and coming up with plans to get it. And the scheming, insatiable heart leads us then to idolize things, to idolize the wrong things, and to disregard the other things that we should have been regarding. It, it just it confuses us and clouds our judgment and leads us astray. 
we pursue and we scheme for things that we think will make us happy. If it's money, power, love, comfort, you know, we just, we want those things, and so we go after them. So what this looks like then, and so when we idolize family, and there's probably no greater idol in our culture than just the family or love or a partner. So we idolize that, and it's all we think of, and it's all we want, and so we pursue it. We put all of our hopes into a spouse and a family. Well, then, right, we are going to compromise ourselves in all kinds of ways to get it. We're going to make all kinds of terrible decisions, or we bring all those expectations and idolizations into it, and then we just smother our spouse and our family and our children with our expectations. We put all of, or, or we go into family, family life, marriage life without that, without putting our hopes in something else, if it's work or success or something else, and then we disregard our family, which is a total another issue, <laughs> where we don't care about our family enough because we've, our idol is something totally different. Ultimately, we become trapped because what idols do for us, all of these things, they ultimately enslave us. The false gods that we worship, we, they, we become enslaved to them. We have to have them, right? Because once we get them or we think we need them, then we can't imagine life without it, right? And maybe you've been in that spot in a relationship. I can't imagine without this person. I have to have this or I have to have someone like this. I couldn't, I have to have it. it whoa, right? Now I am trapped. I have to this pressure on ourselves and expectations on others. And idols, when we worship these idols, it also clouds our thinking. We think, can't think very clearly. And this is what Ecclesiastes is arguing for and what we've all experienced as well at various points in our own lives, right? I mean, love is an incredibly powerful and intoxicating thing. And when we give ourselves into love or into relationships, the ability to think clearly goes out the window, and we are fully invested and fully in. We become trapped and we start making compromises to keep that idol because it feels so good. This could be anything, right? Not just love. This is how all idols work. And then they ultimately rob us of the very thing that they were given to us for, our joy. No longer are they enjoyable. <laughs> no longer am I able to enjoy this. Now I have to have this. And it diminishes and diminishes and diminishes the amount of joy and happiness that it gives me. Instead, these things become my taskmasters, my owners, my slave owners, and they demand and they take more and more and more and more and more, robbing us of our abilities to enjoy the life and the things that we gave. I was, Becky and I were talking about an illustration of this. I don't know if this is helpful or not. I thought I would give an illustration from Pride and Prejudice. If you're familiar with Pride and Prejudice, there's a couple of characters. There's Lydia and Wickham, if you're familiar with these. And Lydia is this younger sister, and I mean, she is just, she's the epitome of the fool. That's, that's her whole point, is to be this foolish girl. She just wants love, and she just wants the approval of everyone. She just wants everyone to look at her life and say how great it is. And she throws herself at men, right? And she throws herself into this, to the arms of this Mr. Wickham, who on the outside everyone thinks is a good guy, and you think he's going to be a good one, but he's not also, because he also is just out for pleasure, and he sleeps with Lydia, and all these, everything goes, falls apart, and they're going to get married, and they're not, I mean, it's just ruin, ruin, because they both 
are seeking their own idols, and neither one can see clearly the path that they're on, and it's a path to complete ruin. Because one is just seeking approval, and it leads her to lose everything. And Wickham pursues pleasure, and he loses his name and reputation and everything in the result. Now, both get, it all gets redeemed. They all get rescued by Mr. Darcy at the end, uh, if you're familiar. And we all need a Mr. Darcy to come rescue us. But, and, and this is the kind of the reality, right, of like Jane Austen and all these books and all these movies. You know, we are all Lydia's and Wickham's. None of us are Mr. Darcy's. <laughs> None of us are the ones who are rescuing anybody. We're all the ones, we all have this this issue in our hearts. This is what Christians mean by when we say, like, everyone is a sinner. That doesn't mean that we all make mistakes. I mean, it it does, but it's not that we all make mistakes. It's not that we've all messed up. It's that we are all messed up. Like, there's something wrong with us and and our hearts. We are constantly loving the wrong things. We are constantly pursuing things that we shouldn't be pursuing. Like, that's what we mean by when we say, like, we're all sinners. We're all Lydia's and Wickham's who are just really concerned about people's opinions of us, who get really caught up in all of the passions and desires of the world, and we, we, we throw ourselves into these things, and we find ourselves in this position, and we find ourselves needing to be rescued all the time. We have hearts that long and desire for things. We have hearts that are always searching and looking the question isn't if we have idols, right? The question is more of like, how do we identify the idols that we have, right? How do we identify if family has become an idol in our life, if relationships are an idol, is causing us to not experience the joy and the contentment that God has for us? And I think the, the greatest way we can probably identify where our idols are is we can identify where in our life we feel the most worried and anxious, where we feel the most fearful, that's a good indication of where we're putting most of our hopes. If all of our fears and worries and anxieties are around the family, well, you, you, we probably are putting a little bit of hope, too much hope, into this, into these people, into this family. If all of your fears and hopes and all the, you know, your anxieties around work or money, right, it's a good indication that that's, in fact, your greatest idol. We all have idols. It's just which one's the greatest at the moment and we swing between them. These hidden hopes where we, we place, we don't even know we're doing it, right? And we all struggle with making an idol out of something, and we all are going to struggle with idolatry around love and marriage, like Solomon says, and one in a thousand don't. It's, like, it, it's just impossible not to do this. And this leads us then if we, if we give ourselves to these idols and we don't correct ourselves, it leads us to have families that are marked by pressure and expectation, by conflict and disagreement, right? Marriages that are more work relationships rather than loving relationships. Relationships or singles that foolishly pursue romantic relationships without thinking of the consequences. This is the problems that we find ourselves in. So what do we do then with all of this? Right, the world offers us just a few kind of kernels of wisdom and says, you know, well, start focusing on something else. Just switch your idol over to something other than that. You know, you care too much about this boy. You should worry more about your work. I mean, that's just a trap. I've just, you just vacillate between, and then that idol lets you down, and then you switch over to something else. You switch over to something else. Or the alternative is just to become a cynic, you know, and just 
give up and say, this is all foolishness anyway, then fine, I'm just not going to pursue a relationship. I'm just not going to pursue marriage. That's fine, I'm not going to open my door to this, or I'm, I'm just never going to have a marriage that's going to be known for love and unity. It's just my lot in life. We close ourselves off to the hope of contentment and joy that God has. The hope of the gospel is not just for eternal life, but the hope of the gospel is for freedom now in our lives. Freedom from these enslaving idols that we serve. Because how do we find this freedom and ability to enjoy these gifts? Right, The author tells us throughout Ecclesiastes, the author continually tells you how we do this. How are we to enjoy our lives? We're to fear the Lord. It's fearing God. Fearing God means, right, I mean, loving God more than everything else. And that has to be the place where we all are at. If you're going to enjoy life, you have to love the Lord. No, I mean, the author of Ecclesiastes doesn't say, then you need to work harder at loving your spouse. Right? It doesn't say, this is the greatest gift God has given you is your spouse, so you should love them more. No. Fear God. Enjoy the life that God has given you as you fear the Lord. It's got to, have, it's got to start with this fear. Anything else is a trap. It won't produce freedom. It just produces another controlling, enslaving idol. We'll be able to f- more fully walk in wisdom in our relationships and our pursuit of relationships when we find our greatest joy and happiness in God, right? When we actually fear the Lord. And how do we get to a place where we fear the Lord and we find that joy in Him? The biblical picture that goes along with this has always been this confession and sacrifice. We're always called to confess. We're always called to pray. We're always called to be sacrificing. The need to sacrifice from the beginning on, right? If you think about Abraham and Isaac onward, I mean, there's always been this sacrificing with God. An opportunity to experience the full trusting in him and in his goodness and his grace. With every gift he gives, we're supposed to be giving the first fruits, sacrifice. The sacrificial system wasn't intended to save anybody. But it was intended to show us our need for our Savior, to show us and to help us to fear the Lord, to give back to Him. We're, to call to, we're called to sacrifice our idols. And to do this, we see and experience the love of God for us. When we see the love that God has for us, when we see the sacrifice He made for us, we begin to be able to sacrifice our own idols and the things that we love. When we see God sacrificing his own son for us, right, which is at the very heart of the Christian message, right, is a God who loves his people so much that he gives his only son. When you see Jesus willing to leave everything behind and die the death that he dies for us, right, our hearts are moved and softened. And these idols that we hold on to become less and less appealing and less and less powerful in our lives. We start to be filled up with the love of God, with the fear of the Lord, when we really believe in his great love towards us. So what this looks like then is as we move towards fearing the Lord more and more, having this heart that loves him, our hearts then, our hearts were always made to worship and love things. So we can't just stop loving an idol. We can't just stop worshiping something falsely. We have to replace loves 
we have to replace worship since my heart just wants to worship and it's always going to be worshiping. And so I'm always going to find an object of that worship. Right? I've got to place that object as the right one. This Christian life that we're called to live is not a life that's completely free of sin. That, that's never been the case. This is never the promise. Right? But the Christian life is a life of constant repentance. That's how Martin Luther describes it, right? Like, it's just a constant life of repentance. My sin is always in front of me, right? As a Christian, you grow, though, in your ability to put off sin and to put on Christ. I confess my sins. I confess and I put off and I put on. I am shown my idols and I confess it. And I put them, all, I put them away and I put on Christ. And as you do this more and more and more, right, our hearts are changed our attitudes change, and we get better and better at it. It doesn't mean we don't make new idols, but we find this freedom to put them off. We put them off quicker, faster, easier. They have less power and control. In our moments of dis- disappointments and longings, right? And all of us have those deep moments where we are deeply disappointed when things didn't work the way that we thought they were going to work, right? We give our desires to the Lord and we worship. And also in our moments of success and joys, as parents and as spouses, we give those desires and we worship God. This looks like a people who are really honest in their prayer life, a people who really pray to the Lord and give him credit and glory and ask for help in good and in bad, in disappointments and in success, always asking the Lord confessing our disordered hearts and loves when they become apparent to us and asking God to reorder those hearts, to reorder our loves. It looks like a people that are actually able to trust and wait, which is really hard, but to trust and wait that God has good for us even though we want it now. To trust that God has good for us, that we look for God to do the work rather than make schemes and plans to do the work for God. We rely on him more than we rely on ourselves. And what this does then is it changes our attitude and it now enables us to see our spouse and our family when they do come or if they come, this gift has been given, we actually see them as gifts. My spouse and my family is actually a gift because I didn't scheme and make it happen. The Lord gave this to me. When we see our family as a gift and not as a possession, not as a means of salvation, right, then we're actually content and we're actually able to enjoy our families, our spouses, be thankful, to steward, to have patience. All of us have the same calling, right? The wisdom is the same for all of us. Be content with wherever you find yourself in life and enjoy the toil, the lot that the Lord has given you. And we won't be able to do that, though, until we fear the Lord. So this calling is the same, to fear the Lord. Do you want your marriage to be marked by joy? Fear God. You need to confess your sin and your idolatries. If that's laziness, if that's been putting too much hope and control, whatever, you got to confess that and give it to the Lord and love the Lord more than you love your spouse and your kids. If you want to enjoy experiencing that joy. Do you want contentment, joy, and discernment and singleness? Then you got to confess your idolatries to the Lord as well, right? And seek wisdom and discernment 
express those hopes and desires, give them to the Lord, and wait and trust that God has good in store for, him, for you. But all of us are called to the same thing. It's this life and a community that really takes seriously the gifts that God has given us. We enjoy what God has given us, and when we turn those gifts into idols, we are quick to confess them, and we are quick to, to turn to the Lord and to receive his forgiveness.